So, we started this last week, and I asked you this question, are you even familiar with Bart Ehrman? This is a fellow who wrote three books that we're kind of looking at, misquoting Jesus, the first one, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, how inflammatory, someone has changed the Bible on you, he says, and uh, New York Times bestseller. He's made a lot of money, a whole lot of money, not only in the selling of these books, But with the views that he's got in the books, he's very popular on the lecture circuit. And he charges a good bit of money, both to lecture and to debate other people. Uh, He's written another book more recently called Forged, where he argues that there are forgeries in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, and he goes into his detail on that. These are writings in the name of God, and the Bible's authors are not who we really think they are. You've been deceived, you've been tricked with forgeries. And then a third book that he's written, Lost Scriptures. Books that just didn't make it into the Bible that have every bit as good of reason to be called Scripture as those that did. You've been deceived by those who failed to put in the books that belong in the Bible. Now, maybe you haven't read those books, but one person I heard from after class last week is familiar with the great courses. You can buy them in CDs. You can buy them in DVDs. You can buy them online and get them digitally delivered. Ever seen the great courses? History, all sorts of things. The great courses taught on the New Testament are taught by Professor Bart Ehrman. Same fella. Now, to remind you of who this gentleman is... This gentleman says he was born again at age 17, spent three years at Moody Bible Institute, then went to Wheaton where he got a bachelor's degree in English. Very apparent, I might add. He's an excellent writer. He writes very lucidly and entertainingly. Makes it real easy to read his books and be seduced by his reasoning. He goes and he gets his MDiv at Princeton Seminary... David's influenced me. Sorry, didn't mean that Princeton Cemetery. I've got a lot of good friends that graduated from there who love the Lord. Uh, Princeton Seminary and uh, took his MDiv from there, stayed on to get his PhD, has really good academic qualifications and did some really good academic work. From there, he proceeded to become an agnostic, which he is today. Even though he's an agnostic, he's a professor of religion, sits as a chaired professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, uh, He teaches the New Testament class there to over 300 students and uh, teaches them. But basically what he does is try to debunk the New Testament. Uh, This is a man who has written a number of scholastic books, but he's famous more so at least in general circles, for his popular works. And those are the works that I'm really taking to task. He writes differently for the scholastic circle than he does for the popular circle. He'll take things to an extreme and write in tabloid language for the popular circle that he will not do, or at least has not done, to my knowledge, from what I've read, in the scholastic circles. So I talked about that last week and said, we can draw a line between what's written for the scholastic community and what's written that you will more typically read as part of the popular community. A scholastic work should be logical, it should be fair, it should be documented, it should be accurate. If someone is going to take a position in a scholastic work, they should at least say, I'm taking this position, there are other people who disagree with me, and here they are if you want to go read a different position. That's a fair and balanced, sorry Fox, way to approach things in a scholastic manner. Popular works are different. Popular works are works that are more readable. Popular works are works that are more sensational. They grab your attention and they suck you in. They draw you in and they get you reading them. The idea of being logical, fair, documented, and accurate, that's not an issue in a popular material. Popular material can get away without being fair, without being documented, without being accurate, and heavens without being logical. Because people are not as 
prone. But first of all, in popular worlds, people don't have as much background knowledge to judge and assess things fairly. This is why we always need to be careful what we read. I don't say be careful what you read because, oh, what if something is true and, and, and we're worried because the truth might shake us. Not at all. I believe in absolute objective truth from the Lord. I'm not afraid of anybody reading anything from a truth perspective. What I am concerned about is people who read things that don't have enough background information to adequately assess whether it's true. So I go back to what I said last week. If you want to read Bart Ehrman, read him now while we're covering this stuff in class. And if you want to read his popular pablum, read it now. And we'll talk about it over the next few days or next few weeks. The accuracy of the New Testament is where we started. There are really three questions these books pose that are three independent questions. How reliable is the text? How reliable are these words that we have in the New Testament? How do we know that these New Testament words are, in fact, what the New Testament writers wrote? His forgery book is how authoritative are the books? Are these books that are truly authoritative and written with apostolic authority? Or are these works that really are just sort of the ones that made the grade? Kind of, if we go to book three, kind of ones that maybe the political power structure thought supported them. Da Vinci Code type stuff. Where all of the books that might say, Christianity is wrong, those got suppressed while only those that supported the power structure of the church were elevated into the canon or the Bible. So we talked last week about this first area, how reliable is the text. And in that regard, I told you that I think the fair thing to do is to always be up front with where you believe and what you believe so that people can filter it. It's apparent to me from the email traffic I got that not everybody who watches these on the internet or reads these or is even in here believes in, for example, the inerrancy of Scripture. And if we isolate those who do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, different people believe that in a different way. So it's very important for me that you understand where I'm coming from as I use these terms because I do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And when I say I believe that the Scripture is inerrant without error, what I'm saying is the original Scriptures are God's true and valid communication to man in the form and in the manner that God's chosen to give them. God can choose to use poetry. God can choose to use uh, uh, symbolism. God can choose to use historical dissertation. God can write through people. God can write on stone. But God himself has delivered to the world and to the church scriptures that were, are true and valid in their original form as the form and manner in which God's chosen to give them. That's what I believe. That's where I'm coming from. So with that, how reliable is the text? Now we started with Bart Ehrman's concern. Bart Ehrman said the following. Some scholars will tell you... Time out. Let me, let me get rid of that for a minute. If you weren't here last week, I've just skipped some of the background. We've got, at this point in time, around 5,500 manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek. Now, when I say manuscripts, that's not all 5,500 from Matthew 1 to Revelation 22. Some of them are just little small fragments of a verse. But we've got over 5,000 of these that span over 1,000 years of people handwriting them. And when scholars take those together... And they produce, for example, I brought uh, one of my textbooks from college, my Greek New Testament. When scholars produce these New Testament books, when scholars go to the New Testament manuscripts to produce a translation, 
They've got over 5,000 to choose from. And we need to go into a little detail about that today. And the reason why is because there are statements like this by Bart Ehrman. Some scholars will tell you there are 200,000 differences amongst all of these manuscripts. Some will tell you 300,000 differences. Some say 400,000 differences. There are so many he just doesn't even know. Something like between 300,000 and 400,000 would be my guess. And his conclusion was, if God truly wrote these scriptures and was responsible for every letter in them, then why would not God make sure we still had these with every letter in them? Since there are 300, 400,000 differences, God never inspired anything. And we talked about that last week in terms of Paul's passage to the Romans about how, how even in the Old Testament, God had entrusted his holy writings, his oracles, to the Jews. It was something that was tremendous. It's this miraculous thing of God in his divine word entrusting it to humanity to secure, making sure through his providence and, and divine work that humanity does so in such a way that the message is not lost. And it's the same principle here. So what do we have? Well, Bart will tell you the sky is falling, the sky is falling. He's chicken little in his popular works. He says, how on earth could you ever rely upon your Bible when your New Testament is based upon the scholastic work of people you don't even know? who have sorted through over 5,000 manuscripts with over three to 400,000 problems. Manuscripts written by people over a 1,000 years that you don't know, without any original that Paul ever wrote, without any gospel ever written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or anyone else who wrote under their name. How on earth would you ever try to say this is the divine word of God? You just can't. And that's his chicken little approach. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. There's too much we don't know. Now, he doesn't write that way in his scholastic works. Because you can't do that with scholars. I'm not saying factually he doesn't portray the same facts, but he doesn't draw those conclusions of fear where he tries to prey upon... You know, th look, there's a little bit of everybody in America that loves a conspiracy. I'm still not sure how many people were involved in killing President Kennedy. I mean, there's just something in me that says, you know, the man is out there hiding something. I'm not sure who the man is. That's some of what he's hiding. There's this little bit in us that just loves it. Or the National Enquirer would not sell as much as it does. And Ehrman plays on that psychological part of us. If we look at the facts, the facts are very different. There are, let's say, 300,000 differences. Let's take out the misspellings. Let's take out the typos, if you will, handwritten typos. Let's take out the word flips, where someone either flips something or not. I'll tell you, just this morning, if you were in here this morning, Pastor David was preaching on the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting just to follow along and in the process see if there are any differences in all of these 5,000 some odd manuscripts? Anything that the class would want to know about. And there is one. And this is typical of what you see. This is to the angel of the church at Ephesus right. And he has this uh, uh, statement. And in verse 2, he says, I know, now this is ergasu. I know your works. Well, works of you. Works of you. Sue is of you. Let's make that a little bit bigger. 
I know the works of you and the turmoil, the, 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 the really hard toil. Toil is a better word. The toil. And you see, I've circled the one there. And the reason I've circled the one is because that's a place where different manuscripts read differently. And you go down to the bottom and you see how they read differently. And do you know what they say? And you'll know more about this as we get through this class. But they tell you different manuscripts that have just the word toil. And then there are some other manuscripts that have the word toil. Whoops. And then after it, your. Your toil. So it either says, I know your works. I know your toil. And I know your long-suffering patience, patient endurance. It either says that or it just says, I know your works, toil, and your patient endurance. It's a question of whether two of those words have your or three of them do. And truly, in a translation, it doesn't matter. Because you translate them all the same anyway. Because the your goes to all of them. That really makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. That's, that's what I'm talking about. There are just some, you know, maybe someone left out. Some of the manuscripts have the word you're there for the third time and some of them don't. But he's certainly talking about their toil. It just really doesn't make any difference. Here's some more obvious slip-ups. I, 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 this one, you know, things happen in your life and you're never sure Why? I got a 20 on a math test in third grade in Miss Offenson's class in Rochester, New York. I got really upset with her. I went to her and I said, I don't deserve a 20 on this test. I got every answer right. And she said, you didn't take the test right. You get a 20. I'm still not over it. <laughs> Miss Offenson, if you're still alive and you watch this, I forgive you. But I'm not over it. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. She gave a math test where she numbered things 1, 2, 3, 4. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I answered like she went down the page. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. See, I was reading down the page when I should have been reading across the page. Okay, you know what happens? You miss a whole bunch of them when you do that. I got the right answers. I just didn't put them next to the right number of the problem, and I got my 20%. Let me give you one of the huge areas where there are lots of variant readings. Not just one. This doesn't count as one variant reading. This is dozens of variant readings. Dozens of changes. Here's what happened. Someone's copying the text of Luke chapter 3. At the end of the chapter, toward the end of the chapter, Luke starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And this original text that was being copied from had it in two columns so that it read down, Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matat, blah, 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 keeps on going. I ran out of room on the blow-up, so this is not dead-on accurate. It's an illustration. Um, then, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah. So that's what it is. Now, this fella in the 13th century... The 1200s is writing down this. It's now called Codex 109. It's in the British Library. And he, bless his heart, probably can't even read Greek. He's just kind of copying the letters. And he's going across the page instead of down the page. So he's got God as the son of Aram. He's got Pharaohs as the creator of the world. Because he's just got it, and it's so clear when you sit there and map it out what he did. He read across instead of reading down. That's like, that's almost a hundred of your two, three hundred thousand right there. I mean, do scholars, should, is the sky falling? Oh no, God might have been the son of Aram. No. That's just an obvious mistake, an obvious slip up. When you get through with all of this, what scholars really fuss about are less than 10 differences that have any substance or weight at all. But of those, none of them make any difference in doctrine or practice. Unless you're an Appalachian snake handler relying upon the last part of Mark. 
other than that, I can't find that they make any difference at all. Now, that's where we ended last week. Let's pick up. Someone asked this question of me. If the early church thought the scriptures were inerrant, why didn't they keep them? If these scriptures were truly thought to be holy, inspired, divinely breathed, if there was something inordinately special about Paul's epistles or these four gospels, why didn't the early church keep them? That's a really good question. And one that was worthy of part of the supplement that I wrote. One of the reasons I wrote the supplement was because I failed to address that question properly in the original lesson. I would like to first point you back to a church historian. The first really good, thorough church historian that we have is a fellow named Eusebius. He was born around 262, lived to about 339. And he took it upon himself not only to write a, a great book on the places in the Holy Lands, kind of an atlas of his day, Not only did he write The Life of Constantine, a a biography about the first Roman emperor to become a Christian, but he wrote a church history book. And in the church history book, he details what early church life was. Now, if the Apostle John, in fact, lived long enough to write the gospel and the book of Revelation, we've got the outside time of Scripture around 95-100 A.D., That's the latest scripture. So this guy's born about 160, 170 years after the close of the New Testament. But he's actually living through a time of persecution. He's well into his 40s. He's 41. When Diocletian, the Roman emperor, declares another war upon Christianity. Another holy war. And Eusebius writes the edict of Diocletian. He quotes the edict. As a 41-year-old bishop in the church, Eusebius had the edict, lived in fear under the edict, trusting in the Lord. Here's what Diocletian did. He ordered all the churches to be burned to their foundations, and he ordered all of the scriptures to be burned. And you can read more about the histories that they would go into people's houses, and they would look for scriptures as a way to prove whether or not those people were Christians. And if they were, they would not only burn or, 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 or crucify or, or feed to the animals, the martyrs, but they would burn the scriptures as well. And this was not once, this was a repeated occurrence in the early church during times of persecution. So why aren't the scriptures there? Why didn't the early church keep them? Well, no, number one, they got destroyed. This is not like books today where you can run off a Xerox or keep one on a PDF. These are expensive, hard to produce. Not only were they destroyed by authorities, but they were also destroyed by the weather. This was not a time most of the early church manuscripts were not written on leather parchment. Way too expensive, way too hard. Most of the early church manuscripts were written on papyrus. We get the word paper from it. It's a a reed-like plant, especially prolific around the banks of the Nile. The Egyptians seem to have been some of the first, or the first, to actually figure out how to use it. But they would cut it, and they would take one, the grain running one way, the grain running another way, press it together, and make sheets of papyrus that could be written on. And this is what the early church had for most of their writings. Well, this is a plant. This is biodegradable. This goes in the recycle bin. You put this in Houston. You put this out in your yard. You go bury a sheet of papyrus in Houston, Texas. And dig it up a year later and tell me if you can find anything. The bugs eat it. The fungus among us will go after it. It's going to be destroyed. I don't think it's a coincidence when something biodegrades that easily that what you find out is the church didn't destroy manuscripts. The government destroyed them. 
and nature destroyed them. Not all of them. We actually have an astonishing number. In fact, the reason we have any today is because the church did treasure them. The fact that we have so many is an indication that in spite of persecution, in spite of the strongest authority of the Romans, in spite of the hatred of people, in spite of all of the burnings, in spite of all of the elements, we still have substantial numbers of early copies of scriptures. So, now, we get to this question. How do the scholars try to take what we have and rebuild original texts? By the way, that's not really Paul. They claim it is in this famous painting, but he didn't have books like that. Just an aside, and I think that may be a big pen. I hadn't looked close. How do scholars rebuild the text? How do scholars go about putting together a Greek New Testament that can be relied upon by scholars in translating an English New Testament? There are three basic sources they go to. Scholars go to old manuscripts. Scholars go to what we call the Apostolic Fathers. If you don't know what those are, I'll cover it in a minute. And scholars go to early Bible translations, and they'll use these. Let's talk about them for just a moment. Let's start with old manuscripts. The oldest fragment that we have of the New Testament that we know about, and I say know about because, as Dr. Capes was telling me, when he was last at the London Museum uh, a decade or so ago, they've still got boxes of fragments that nobody's gone through and indexed. But the oldest one we know about right now is called the John Rylands Fragment. John Rylands is where it was when it was, where where in England it was when it was discovered, the significance of this passage. This is a passage out of John. It's written on front and back, which is unusual, I might add, for papyrus. But it's written on front and back. It's also got an abbreviation. You'll see that P52. P52. That's an abbreviation because this is a piece of papyrus. That's the P. That's been given the number 52 because when it was being cataloged by the scholars, it was the 52nd piece that they really dealt with. Now, the dating is fussed about by scholars. Some will date it as early as 100 A.D. Some will date it as late as 150 A.D. Some people say you really can't even be that close. But you can't go much earlier than 100 A.D. because the Gospel of John's probably written around 95 A.D. This is found in Egypt, that dry, arid climate where papyrus will last. So this is found in Egypt. It's... Within 25 to 50 years of the original writing of the Gospel of John, which most scholars say happened way over in Ephesus. So it's an amazing, amazing piece. It's it's a very old piece. If we were to take all of these old manuscripts and talk about them in total, we can draw a line between the number of manuscripts we have during the persecution of the church, that early time period to 310 A.D. In that time period, we've got about 50 fragments, some of them pretty good fragments, I might add. I'm I'm talking like the Gospel of of, uh, uh, Mark, for example. We've got almost the entire Gospel in one of the fragments. We've got some really good manuscripts among those 50. After the persecution ended, when Christianity became the official religion of the state, post-Constantine, we've got amazing manuscripts, phenomenal manuscripts. The one that I've put a picture of up here is called Codex Sinaiticus. It's dated around 350. See, one of the things Constantine did is he wrote to Eusebius and he said, Eusebius, my brother, I want you to get 50 of the very best copies of Scripture and have them nicely bound and have them reproduced. We want 50 of the best. A number of scholars think Codex Sinaiticus is one of those 50. Codex means book. And Sinaiticus is it's called because it was found by this uh, uh, fellow named Constantine von Tischendorf. 
In the mid to late 1800s, actually this is in the mid 1800s, he's off looking for new Greek manuscripts because he wants to get a better Greek New Testament. He's at the the monastery on Mount Sinai, St. Catherine's Monastery, a Greek monastic community. And they've got uh, some kindling there for starting fires. And it's just old sheets from the library. And he's looking at one of the sheets and he realizes this is the New Testament. And my, it looks very old. They're using them to start fires. So he goes back and rescues everything that's left and he's got almost a complete Bible. Now it's gotten dispersed in different places as there's been fights over it and all the rest. But an amazing manuscript of biblical texts and a couple of other texts as well. We've got Codex Vaticanus. That's the one that I had last week up here. Not the one. That's the, fa- the, the original of which I brought a facsimile for you to look at. We have a facsimile of Sinaiticus in the library as well if you ever want to go look at it. But this dates also from sometime in the 300s. Most scholars date it a little bit later. They date it by the way letters, the, the, way the letters are shaped. And uh, that, that's the typical dating if it doesn't have a date within it. Now, the scholars take these 5,000 some odd manuscripts and they start sorting them like you would a puzzle. They figure out where the end pieces are that form the border. And then they start putting them together in different color groups or different change groups or different things. And they try to sort them to help put together a manuscript tree like a family tree. And they'll find they've got three or so, depending upon which scholar you're reading, different text types where people tended to follow this type of a text or that type of a text. This is somewhere in the 300s likely, but likely before in, in earlier forms. It's, it's all a little fluid. It's not real clean boxes. But the boxes are there. And they'll take these texts and then they'll see for the next generation, the subtext. And then they can go from there to the next generation where they form what they call tribes. And then the next generation where they form what they call families. And you can see, okay, well, this document in the 13th century made the same errors as this document in the 8th century. They must have been copying from that. And that one from the 8th century, they did from this one on the 6th century. And they're able to sort it back and put it in a family tree where it makes a whole lot of sense. And this isn't some hidden mystery game. You want to learn how to do it? Come sit down with me or someone else. We'll teach you a couple of years of Greek. We'll put this in your hand. And you won't be an expert, but you'll be very well versed to figure out how it's done. It's not complicated. It's not hidden. It's not some mysterious process where the man is trying to deceive you. In fact, you can take the Catholic version of the Greek New Testament that the Aelins and others put together, the Nestle Aelin version, and it merges perfectly with the Protestant version. Because the scholars aren't fussing over what the Greek text said, except in a few, a small handful of situations. And so that's what you have. Now, not only do they use old manuscripts, but they use what I I call the apostolic fathers. These are not the apostles. These are the fathers of the church that got their authority after the death of the apostles. The idea being they were the next in the chain of authority beyond the apostles. So they're the early fathers of the church for the first 300 or so years after the apostles. And they quote scripture. They quote scripture all the time. And we're able to date it because we know when they lived and we know when they wrote. So we're able to look at the scripture they quote. You can put together almost an entire Greek New Testament just pulling quotations out of the apostolic fathers. Their writings weren't burned the way scripture was. Now there is a warning that goes with them. Sometimes they quote and sometimes they approximate. So you've got to take that into account. In fact, sometimes they have secretaries who'd come back over the approximation and fill in the full quote. But you've got them. So the scholars will look at the old manuscripts, they'll look at the apostolic fathers, and then they'll look at other ancient translations. And again, you've got to be careful. In Greek, you have what's called a definite article. Ho, hey, to. The, 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 the word the. Latin doesn't have it. So in those early translations into Latin, those 3rd century translations, it's not going to be perfect. It doesn't tell you what the original text said, 
But it helps you understand how those manuscripts might work together and when some changes may have happened. So, with all of that, let's look at a couple of these problem texts. We got about 10 minutes if y'all aren't too bored. Is that okay? Let's look at some of them. First, Mark 16, 9 through 20. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you how you could work through this if you wanted to and why you don't need to fear the sky is falling and why Bart Ehrman doesn't have to send you quaking to your knees wondering, oh, Lord, do you exist? This is our Bible that we are using, at least I'm using in this class. It's the English Standard Version. It's a wonderful version. And if you've got the English Standard Version and you get to Mark chapter 16, this is chapter 16 of Mark, the resurrection. Toward the end of the resurrection story, after they see that that the tomb is empty, after they're told, don't be alarmed, After they're told he's risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. After they're told to go tell Peter and the disciples that he's going before you to Galilee, that they will see him in Galilee. After they leave, after they flee the tomb, trembling and astonishment seized them. Seized them. Then Mark ends. And the RSV tells you some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. There's even a nice footnote there, footnote 1. You can go to footnote 1, and if you have glasses, you can read it. It's so small, if I put the whole thing up here, none of us will read it, so just uh, bear with me. It says, some manuscripts in the book with 16, chapter 16, verse 8, and they do. Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. Also true. Then it says, uh uh-oh. A few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14. One Latin manuscript adds after verse 8 the following, and it gives another ending. There are other manuscripts that take this part and move it over to the Gospel of Luke. So you're told that. But if you want to know, oh mercy, does that mean God, Jesus never gave the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation? Well, no, he did. You can read it in Matthew. It doesn't change doctrine one bit, except for the part that says... uh, These signs will accompany those who believe. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Um, Outside of that, it really doesn't change church doctrine. Now, you could go further if you'd like. You could take a, a good Greek text commentary and look what it says about this. This is a book by Bruce Metzger, who was the teacher of Bart Ehrman. This is one of those cases where the pupil did not exceed teacher. The endings of Mark. Four endings of the gospel according to Mark are current in the manuscripts. So we've got four different endings, basically. The last 12 verses of the commonly received text of Mark, which is what we have, are absent from the two oldest Greek manuscripts. Now, if you were in here when we learned the Hebrew alphabet in our Old Testament study, That's the Hebrew Aleph, and that's the abbreviation that's given to Codex Sinaiticus, what Tischendorf found, that really nice manuscript, 350 A.D. So it's telling us that from that manuscript, that manuscript did not have this ending, the 350 manuscript. It's also missing from B. Now, capital B is the abbreviation. That's given to Codex Vaticanus. That's the other one that I showed you. And so neither of those really old manuscripts have it. All right? Now, it drops a footnote, and we can go to the footnote in a minute, but let's keep going. And you'll see how they use other translations and how they use the Apostolic Fathers. It's also missing from the old Latin Codex, 
Bobiensis, which is a 4th century codex. It's missing from the Sinaitic Syriac manuscript. It's missing from a hundred Arminian manuscripts. It's missing from the two oldest Georgian manuscripts. So when the Gospel of Mark was being translated into this Latin manuscript, being translated into Arminian, being translated into Georgian, they didn't have it at that time either because it's missing. They go on to say, and look here at the Apostolic Fathers, Clement of Alexandria and Origen show no knowledge of the existence of these verses. They're very early writers in the church. Furthermore, Eusebius and Jerome attest the passage was absent from almost all Greek copies of Mark known to them. That's the same Eusebius that we were talking about. So you're looking at someone around 400 A.D. Uh, I said 400, excuse me, 300 A.D., 4th century. The original form of the Eusebian sections make no provision for numbering sections of the text after this. In other words, they didn't even leave room for it. So that's what you have. Now, why is it in there then? Well, what does have it if those don't? The handy little Greek New Testament that you would have gotten if you had been a Greek major with me has a, a, a good evidence of where it exists and where it doesn't. And you can go to it and find Mark chapter 16, and it drops a footnote. It calls this the longer ending of Mark. And so it drops a footnote, and it tells you down at the bottom, these are omitted in, those are Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, blah, 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 blah. And then it's got some where it's included. Here are some manuscripts where they add those verses, but they put an asterisk or some other mark in it to show that it probably was not in the original. And these are in very old manuscripts as well, but not nearly as old. Now, here's something interesting. The verses are added in, for example, A. Now, capital A is another very famous, well-known manuscript. It's called Codex Alexandrinus. It's from Alexandria, Egypt. It's a very well-known one, and it's an early one as well. Probably 50 to 100 years later than what we were looking at. But that's the main authoritative reason that scholars put it in there. You see, they look at it and they say, Ah, Mark seems to end awfully abruptly. There are all of these different endings, different people attached. None of them change anything, except they just give it a little smoothness there at the end. Now, actually, the Gospel of Mark is a pretty abrupt gospel anyway, so I'm not sure that he would have been adverse to doing it uh, abruptly. But uh, uh, at any rate, for some reason, let's go back to this. That's the story on Mark. Now, does that radically change your faith? There is nothing in that path. I mean, Mark has the resurrection of Jesus. Mark has the story. He's got the appearance of Jesus and the promise Jesus would appear more. And there's nothing in the ending of Mark that's not in the other Gospels anyway except for snake handling. I don't think it was in the original. I think it was an early church ad to try and smooth out the Gospel of Mark. I think 99% of good, solid, evangelical, inerrant scholars would agree with that principle. Here's another passage. This one pains me because this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And she's brought before Jesus and Jesus is asked, Hey, what does the law say to do about this woman? And Jesus replies by saying nothing. He just kneels in the sand and writes with his hand. And John doesn't tell us what he wrote because what he wrote is not significant in the story. What is significant is Jesus' finger writing in the sand. Because they asked Jesus, what the law of Moses say we do with someone like this? And Jesus' response is to write with his hand in the sand. You know, there's only one other place where someone wrote in rock in the Bible with a finger. And that's the God who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it's like Jesus is saying, you're asking me what the law of Moses said? Hey, buddy, I wrote it. It's not the law of Moses. It's the law given to Moses by me. And they all go away 
after Jesus says to him, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, who was there without sin that could have cast the first stone? Wrong. Sorry, Miss Carolyn. Jesus. Jesus could have, and he didn't. He said, go and sin no more. Well, this is in the middle of a gospel that is trumpeting on every page how Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus is the greater fulfillment. This is the gospel with seven miraculous signs to mirror the seven days of creation. This is the gospel that ends with the garden scene with Jesus in the garden just as we have in Genesis. This is a miraculous gospel that knits together the Greek idea of word with the Hebrew idea of word. This is the gospel that begins like Genesis in the beginning. This story of Jesus and Judaism and the law of Moses fits so well. But it probably wasn't in the original. Now a lot of scholars will say that it's got so much authenticity that there's a really good likelihood it was just another story in the early church that was recognized as being a story of John's. And it got integrated, but it wasn't in the way John wrote it. It's kind of like someone took the supplement that I gave you this week and added it to the lesson I wrote last week. And they're both mine. But someone merged them together later on. And someone says, you know, this supplement doesn't really fit in here. Well, no, it doesn't. It's kind of merged in there. But it's no less authentic. Now, that's where I land on the story. Different people may land differently. But... It's there. Let me give you one last one. We're running out of time. And you can read the rest of them. I've put them in the papers. Mark 1.41. Now this is one that Bart Ehrman makes a huge deal about. Look at the way the church changed this. They're trying to distort Jesus. They want you not to know who Jesus really is. Look what they say. In the English Standard Version, here's what Mark 1.41 says. Moved with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. This is the leper who says, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretches out his hand, touches him, says, I will be clean. The NIV, look how it reads. Jesus was indignant. He was angry, is the Greek word. He reached out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. Now, What is it? Was Jesus moved with pity or was Jesus angry? See, now, Bart Ehrman says, hey, some later editor came back, you know, came back. Mark probably said Jesus was angry and some later editor said, well, we can't have an angry Jesus. We don't want him to appear that way. So they just changed the word to pity. Well, that's a nice conspiracy theory. But whoever did that is pretty sloppy because in Mark 3, 5, it says Jesus got angry and nobody's fussing about it there. And, and, and that's not like, gee, pages and pages later. This is at the end of Mark 1. You have Mark 2 and then there's Mark 3 and it's right at the start of Mark 3. It's just like turn the page and they missed it that time. And it's very clear Jesus was angry. Actually... I don't know the answer to this, and it's very clear that scholars disagree. The English Standard Version thinks that pity is the better reading. The New International Version thinks that angry is the better reading. Jesus could very easily be angry at the sin and angry at the disease. This is the same Jesus who weeps over Lazarus being dead, even though he knows he's about to raise him from the dead. The the, the pain of sin and the fallenness of man does anger God. In a human sense. It does cause him grief. So, I I mean, this isn't the church changing anything. This is one where, and actually, the Aramaic words for pity and anger sound almost alike. So there may be something there in in the process of moving it into the Greek. I don't know. But regardless, does it change doctrine or practice? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So here's where you wind up. You've got a New Testament that has been the fruit of labor of more hours than could be added together for centuries, for millennia. And it's incredibly reliable. You wouldn't believe. You want to read Homer's Iliad? Good luck. 
I mean, you're like thousands of years away from, over a thousand years away from anything remotely written by him before you get a copy. And they don't have a ton of copies. There's no book of antiquity attested to like this one. And it's out of the love and devotion of the church. But not only that, it's out of the security in the hand of God who wanted to make sure we had a very good, clear, clean understanding of what he had to say to us. And you cannot go wrong studying your English Standard Version. Does it capture the nuances of the Greek? No, not always. But it's really, really good. And the Greek, it's been put together to where it is almost indistinguishable from any original that would ever have existed. So where does it leave us? Points for home. Number one, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I've believed. I'm convinced he's able to guard that until that day, what's been entrusted to me. Paul says, I know whom. Scripture will always point us to Jesus. It will do so accurately. It will do so where we can do it with confidence. It will do so by pointing out what sin is. It will do so by pointing out who God is. The whole thesis of this is that John in 14, 15, and 16 records Jesus saying, I'm going away, but God will send another who's going to remind you of these things, teach you what they mean, and help you say it to other people as you bear witness. And that's the basis of Scripture. We'll talk about it more next week, but the scriptures do properly show us Jesus in whom we can trust. Number two, from Mark, this is the part that's in there. They went out, they fled from the tomb, trembling and astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, that may, you may look at that and say, well, that's, a, that's an unusual way to end the story. That's not the end of the story. For the believer... The resurrection of Jesus with the promise he's going out before us. It's not the end of the story. It's the beginning. Praise the Lord. We have a resurrected Lord who's going out before us. And who promises us we will see him again. That's not a bad ending to me. And then finally, Paul's admonition to Timothy to continue in what he's learned. To what he's firmly believed. And I'd urge you the same thing. This is my prayer for you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, it is my prayer for everybody with this message that they will continue in what they have learned through your holy scriptures. What they have firmly believed, they'll continue to believe it. Lord, knowing that they have learned it through your Holy Spirit from you and the many men and women who have worked to secure this through the ages. And Lord, may people never fear these words that they may have known from childhood Sacred writings that make them wise for salvation and wise for faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the honor of getting to study your word. Through Jesus we pray, amen.